Thessalonians, where we first find Daniel taking on the role of prime minister. These were followed by the empires of the Mede and Persians. That's chapter 6, verse 1. The Greeks, and then the Romans. Then they go off the scene. All of them came and went. Now, if you, if you think about it, you can go from the, the, the Middle East to the Western Hemisphere. We find the stories of great civilizations like the Mayan and the Inca and the Aztec civilizations. But little trace of them remains except for the archaeological artifacts, the ruins. Now think about that. All these great nations rise and they fall. They're born and then they're destroyed. Come and gone. In our modern times, you can say a number of nations that we thought were really, really strong at one time. In Europe, it's England and France. And some of you perhaps are even old enough to remember Italy, who was a major power back during World War II. And then there's Hitler in Germany and going to take over the world. And he came and went, and Germany came and went. By the way, I do believe you're going to see the, the revived Roman Empire, which has some of those main key players in it. But the point is, is that they come and go, and nations rise and they fall. And, and the Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that every nation, quote, has been determined by God himself their pre-appointed times and boundaries. So in Acts, God's saying, listen, I predetermined the nations. And this nation's going to be here and it's going to be the pre-appointed time and its boundaries. This is how big it's going to get and then it's going to shrink. It's going to go off, to the, scene, off the scene. Come and go, come and go, come and go. What happens to these nations is all in the predetermined plan of God for history. I, I think that's thrilling. I really think that's very, very thrilling for us as believers who follow the true God because we know that everything has been planned. See, it doesn't take God by surprise. And what's going to happen to America is not going to take God by surprise. We can be confident in his plan. And the people of God should be able to see that, uh, that God is working everything out, I believe, to the end, where you're going to see uh, the tribulation, you're going to see uh, Israel, you're going to see the millennial kingdom. Won't that be a great time? No, no wars. King Jesus will be on the throne. Reigning in righteousness. No liars, no deceivers in office. He's the only one, and he's perfect. But again, for the people of God, and we see Daniel. Now, I want you to think about it, because, you know, we often look at the, um, the lion's den, and, and again, uh, next week, actually, we're going to be looking at the lion's den. But think about Daniel. He's taken off into captivity when he's 14, 15, 16 years old, 605 B.C. He is with the Israelites through their entire captivity, called the Babylonian captivity, for 70 years, the godly man Daniel is with them in Babylon. He is a ruler, he's a prime minister, he's second in command, third in command. I mean, he's indifferent. And at this point, at the end of chapter 5, he's, you don't even see him on the scene. And then he's brought back as an, another leader. And, and you think, why, Lord? Why would you have this old guy stay there this whole time? And, and think of it this way. He's the shepherd. I'm talking about Daniel now. Now, God is the great shepherd. But what did he do when he was going to send his people into Babylonian captivity for 70 years? He sent a young man about 14, 15 years old to be with his people. And he was with those people the whole 70 years. They always had a voice from God with Daniel. 
See, I believe I look at Daniel as as the shepherd of the of the nation as they are off into the Babylonian captivity. God sent somebody with the people, and it was the it was the man Daniel. And again, this is this is exciting because even though the kingdom of Babylon is destroyed in chapter five, verse thirty-one, and now we come to chapter six, Medo-Persia, the kingdom is destroyed. The man is the same. The kingdom is destroyed. Daniel's the same. Why? Because when it comes to godliness, a godly man or a godly woman, just because the kingdom happens to rise and fall doesn't affect their character. doesn't affect their job before God. His job is still to be a, a godly witness for, for the Lord. And so that's what you see. And now we, we see Daniel coming into a, a new kingdom, but he's the same old man. And I don't want to say that in derogatory. I'm not saying, oh, some old man. I'm saying he has lived a life of consistency and of courage, and you still used to see him still with that consistent, courageous life. Again, empires rise and kings come and go. Fashions and lifestyles change, as one man said. But one stable thing in the midst of all this change is Daniel himself. (laughs) I mean, he's the man of God who does justice and loves kindness and walks humbly with his Lord, like Micah 6 says. Again, it's kind of like in Matthew chapter 7, if you go there. Well, just if you want to go there, but it's the, uh, the man who builds his house on the rock. Let me just read this. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man who, who's built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Daniel's life was founded on the rock. No matter what you threw at the person, he just remained consistent because his focus was on the Lord. Whether he went through poverty when he, or, or a great abundance, whether he was being threatened with his life or he was in the power chair, it didn't matter to him he was, because he was standing on the rock versus the other type of guy who builds his house on the sand and, and then is washed away. Now think of Daniel as the man who stands on the rock. You know, as you think of kingdoms coming and going, you have to ask, where's America in this whole thing? I liked how one man said it. For some Christians, there is a preoccupation with the preservation of certain countries, i.e. America. Sometimes they try to equate America with the church or America with the plan of God, i.e. if America crumbles, then the plan of God will be hindered. Sometimes you think that when you hear certain people talk. And that just isn't the way it is. Nations come and go, and God's work goes on. For no nation is really significant when they're set against the backdrop of eternity and God's plan. We're going to look back from eternity and say, Oh, that America, it's so insignificant. It just happened to be a dot on the time frame. just happened to be a dot of land. It's like Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 15. Behold the nations, plural. Look at all the nations. The nations are a drop in a bucket. I was going to bring up a bucket of water, but I thought you can picture it. And just take one drop. That's the nations, plural, from God's perspective. 
Pretty insignificant, very insignificant. In fact, he goes on, he says, and are counted as small dust on the scale. In other words, the nations are like the dust on the scale that doesn't even show any weight. And before you use the scale, you might go like this, you know, just to make sure they're clean. So we work very hard sometimes for something that is considered a drop in the bucket or dust on a scale. Isaiah 40, verse 15. I think that's just very, very interesting. Nations are like a drop. They're insignificant. In fact, later on in Isaiah, he he calls nations the grass that withers and dies and fades away. And And if you think of people, you think of the same way. I mean, you know, you had great leaders of history, whether it was Cyrus or Nebuchadnezzar or Artaxerxes, Alexander the Great, the great pharaohs. You have Churchill or Mussolini, you have Chavez or Castro or Putin or Obama. Some of them you'd consider great, some you wouldn't, but the point is this, they're all, most of them are all dead or will soon be, right? You're only given less than 100 years and normally you're going to pass on into eternity. See, leaders and nations come and go, yet God's work still goes on. I mean, that's what you really have to remember. It goes back to Daniel chapter 4, verse 32, where it says, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. That's the truth, that the Most High rules. God is the one that rules in history. God is the one that rules in nations. God is the one that rules in leaders. Now again, we've, we've gone over this because this is, this is the main theme of Daniel. Daniel is, is not even about Daniel. It's about God, uh, Daniel's God. That's what Daniel is all about. Daniel's God. That God is the one that arranges nations. That's what the whole, uh, that's what the whole point of the, the image, chapter 2, was about. It was about uh, chapter 3, the fiery furnace. Hey, listen, you know what? You think you're going to kill them? Unless I say they're dead, they're not dead, God says. Takes them through. King eating grass for seven years. Remember, I'm the one that rules, God says. Daniel 5, you know, Belteshazzar, you know, taking a drink out of the, out of the um, temple goblets, all of a sudden he's dead. Why? Because it's God who rules the Most High. He's the one that's ruling. The whole book is, and then it, once we get through the chapter 6, now we get into 7, and from the end, to the end is all prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is God saying, listen, this is my plan that is coming about. Man tries to stop it, God continues on. All this gives great hope. See, this gets us right down to 2013, right? Hey, let's remember, it's God's plan that is being played out, even in America. It transcends, it rises above all the other miscellaneous things that's in the news. It's interesting about the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. See, apparently, I didn't realize this, he had his name put on, if not every brick, most of the bricks that were used to build Great Babylon had his imprint in the brick. And archaeologists are finding thousands and thousands of bricks when they do their um, uh, recovery work. All these bricks with Nebuchadnezzar's name on it and also, I believe, his picture. But this is, they found one brick. It's actually in the British Museum 
which has the image and the name of Nebuchadnezzar on it with a dog's footprint over both of those. (laughs) Isn't that appropriate? Dog's footprint over both of those. You know, when it's all said and done, God rules. Let's look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. Well, again, this is the promotion of Daniel. He's promoted. By the way, these satraps are probably provincial governors. To be over the whole kingdom, I mean, he basically uh, delegated. Unfortunately, men are not always uh, honest and trustworthy. So then he puts three more over those. And over three governors, over these three governors or chiefs of whom Daniel was one, uh, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss because they knew that they would be, you know, uh, getting into the till as it were. So they, so he had 120, but then three chiefs that one of which was Daniel. What's interesting is that word one could be first in rank. But let's just look at this first guy, Darius. Who is he? Because we don't see much of Darius. In fact, history doesn't say that this guy ruled. He could be, there's a couple possibilities. One is he could be uh, Garbuo, which is the, um, the guy that actually, um, um, uh, con- he was the general who actually conquered Babylon. Some say that's another name for him. I personally think after thinking through and reading a number of commentaries, I think Darius is another name for Cyrus. So we won't spend much time here, only to say that. Because actually the word Darius is a title. It's, it's used like you would use the word Pharaoh or the emperor. All right? Because you see the word Darius associated with a number of different leaders, like five different Persian kings. So what I think is, is I think this is the same guy, Cyrus. So this guy, Darius, or Cyrus, it pleased Cyrus to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. I say that because Cyrus, we do know, was the ruler of Persia at this time. And, and who's got the authority to do all this, you know, 120 satraps and three chiefs, and who's got that type of authority? Well, the, the king, the one in control. So I believe this is, is Cyrus. But notice, he, he appoints, verse 2, Daniel was one. I think he was first in rank. I think he was the number one guy under the king himself. You saw that already with Nebuchadnezzar. Notice verse 3, then this Daniel distinguished himself. That word means to excel above the governors and satraps. Because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. You get, you get the picture. <laughs> I mean, he is such an excellent man. Such a trustworthy man that, that he had 120, he had three, but now he's even thinking, man, I think I'm just going to put him over this entire realm of, of conquered Babylon. He's been here for 70 plus years. He knows the people. He knows the culture. But he distinguished himself. That word excellent spirit means the idea is this, attitude. It, he had an excellent attitude. You ever know, have you ever met someone that had a lot of ability but had a terrible attitude? This guy had the ability and the attitude. In other words, he'd be one that you'd want to go to <coughs> because he was a man that honored the Lord 
His attitude was such that he was trustworthy, he was reliable, he was loyal. So he had an excellent spirit. One man said this, The Lord was over his appointments and disappointments. And if you have an excellent attitude, you understand that, that the Lord is over your appointments and your disappointments. See, we get real excited when it's appointments. You get a promotion, you know, somebody says really something nice about you, but what about the disappointments? That's when we start really seeing the true character. With, with, with Daniel, he knew that the Lord was sovereign over both. And therefore, because he was secure in his God, let's think of it this way, he was secure in himself. He was secure in his God, he was secure in himself. He knew that whatever would happen to him, it was in his hands, and he wasn't insecure about that. In fact, we'll see in a moment insecurity being played out, but not in Daniel's case. He had an excellent spirit. He was able to distinguish himself. He was a marathoner. I mean, if you start looking at all the good characteristics of Daniel, he was consistent in his attitude. He was consistent in his performance. He, he was courageous. He was trustworthy. <laughs> I mean, he, he, there's nothing bad that you can find about him. That's why I say, I think it's so interesting that the Lord sends his people because of rebellion into 70 years of captivity and then sends his young guy, Daniel, at the beginning to be like their shepherd. Daniel was the one that was getting all the, um, he was the spiritual leader in one very real sense to the nation, even as they're in captivity. One day, Fellows came to see Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the finest preachers of the day. That was a hundred and some years ago. They were trying to blackmail him. They walked into his office and threatened him, saying that if he didn't meet their demands, they would publish things that would ruin his reputation. This is what Spurgeon said. Write all you know about me across the heavens, end quote. Now, I bring that up because I say this. When it comes to Daniel, he had a, it was like he had a perfect life, though we know he was a sinner. Consistency. With, with Spurgeon, I think it was the same way. I've, I've read a number of stories where people tried to destroy Spurgeon, and he would always say, write what you will. Why? Because This is the point. He had a clear conscience. He says, listen. In fact, he told one guy, you know, he said, you think you have a lot of dirt on me? You should know, you should know what I know about me. Well, you know, I mean, we all are sinners. But when it came to the public, when it came to, like, grabbing a hold and getting dirt, <coughs> being apprehended, Spurgeon said, listen, do as you will, because my conscience is clear. And I believe, as, as believers, if we really want to have impact for God, live with a clear conscience. It should be that a person comes up to you and threatens you and says, you know, I'm going to publish all the dirt on you. Go ahead. There's nothing that's out there that hasn't already been out there. Why? Because he had a clear conscience. Chapter 6, verse 16 says this, Your God whom you serve continually. That's Daniel. He was serving God continually. So that's his uh, Daniel's rank. Now, what's interesting is this. If you go to Ezekiel, uh, Ezra, excuse me, Ezra chapter 1, it says this. Well, you're going to have a hard time finding Ezra, so let me just read it for you. <laughs> well, you might have a hard time. I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying, I saw a few of you go to the table of contents page. I mean, you know, I don't know. 
Now, this is what's very important. In the first year of Cyrus, this is, I'm reading Ezra. You don't have to turn there, but this is Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, I think Cyrus, king of Persia of Ezra, is the same guy, Darius, here. But it says this, in the first year, king of Cyrus of Persia. This is the same exact time frame. First year being the first year that he um, uh, conquered Babylon. This is the same time frame that we're looking in in Daniel 6. Daniel 6, Ezra 1, same exact time frame. But it says, in the first year of, of, the Cyrus, of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the, excuse me, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing and basically said this, the Jews are released to go back to the promised land. Now, why do I bring all that up? Because in chapter 5, Babylon is destroyed. Darius, i.e. Cyrus, takes over. He then, one of the first things he does is he gets Daniel as one of his, uh, the men that's going to oversee the kingdom, and all of a sudden he makes the proclamation the Jews can go back. And you say to yourself, why would a pagan king care about a bunch of Jews going back to Jerusalem? And you know why? I believe this very, I believe this is the reason. Because there was a godly man, Daniel, who had talked to the king and had gone back to Jeremiah, the prophecy, saying God was going to take his people out for 70 years in the Babylonian captivity, but they need to be sent back to Jerusalem. I believe Daniel, being a man of God, talked to the, the pagan king Cyrus. He read it and said, you know what? I'll be the man that sends them back. I believe Daniel has huge ramification, not only for the protection of the Jews in Babylonian captivity, but now even getting them out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. And if you remember, the Jews were brought to Babylon in three waves. 605, 597, 586. Three times Nebuchadnezzar ransacked Jerusalem, brought them to Babylon. And then now three times they're going to be, they're going to be sent back to Jerusalem, the first uh, being um, with Jerubbabel. So and again, I, I, you may not even catch all that. All I'm trying to say is this. This man, Daniel, had such consistency and such courage. I believe he's a main figure of why. Why would a pagan king let the, let the people go from back from Babylon captivity back to Jerusalem, six, seven hundred miles away? I think it all had to do with that godly man, Daniel, and the effect that he had on that king. So again, I believe that's Daniel's influence. Now, whenever a person is exalted, look out. There will always be those who get jealous of his position. And you see that in verse 4. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel. Again, I believe Daniel had the king's ear. I believe the king was looking at him and saying, you know what, I'd like to just leave you in charge. And so people get jealous. People always get jealous when one person gets exalted. And notice what they say. They're looking for a charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. That they could, but they could find no charge, no fault, because he was faithful. The word's trustworthy. They couldn't find a sin of omission. They couldn't find a sin of commission. <laughs> he was just a very steady, godly man. 
But they were jealous. That's not, no question about it. You know, Paul experienced jealousy uh, with other believers in Philippians 1, verse 16. This is what he says. He's in jail. This is Paul the apostle in jail in verse 16 of Philippians 1. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. <coughs> they, they're, they're selfish ambition. That means strife. The idea is bitterness. You ever have someone come against you and you really didn't know why, but then it started to become obvious they were bitter, they were angry, they were jealous of you? By the way, the love is what? Patient love is not envious. So really, the opposite of love is jealousy. I find that it's, it's in a lot of humans' hearts. In fact, I was talking to one of our missionaries, one of our missionaries that we support. This last week, I called her. And I just said, you know, how things go? Oh, we're under a lot of attack. And I said, what's going on? And, you know, well, first of all, it was, you know, the bus and the van, it breaks down all the time, which I kind of knew that anyway. But the main reason was there's another ministry up the road. I'm talking Christian ministry. And there's, being, there's lies and other things being told about the ministry that we support. And, and, and she used the word. She said, oh, they're just jealous of us. And I thought, you know, this jealousy thing is even till this day. Jealousy. Watch out for jealousy in the heart. Watch out for jealousy in your heart. Let's not put it on somebody else. When, when someone else is, uh, is um, promoted or when someone else is complimented, does it feel like a knife going through your heart? Sometimes it does. That's jealousy. That's bitterness. That's anger. That's, that's uh, envy. I'll tell you another story of Charles Spurgeon because I, I feel like it's, it's so appropriate here. Uh, in London, as a contemporary with young Charles Spurgeon, this is, brings him back till he's 20, 20, but in London there was an older preacher that preached during the same time frame as Charles Spurgeon. He had been faithfully laboring for year after year, this old preacher. Now, again, this is not Spurgeon. Spurgeon's only 20 at this point, but this older gentleman, he had been preaching his heart out. He had been getting a following. You know, he was just praising the Lord, but all of a sudden, this younger Spurgeon came along. Along came this fiery, winsome, dynamic Charles Haddon Spurgeon at 20 years of age and made such an impact that the people immediately flooded to hear him preach. The old minister said, that when the throngs began to crowd around the young man, envy and jealousy entered his heart and ate him up. There he was, the famous preacher in London, but the multitudes were listening to Spurgeon. The old pastor said he got down on his knees and cried out before God, telling the Lord all about it. Then he said the Lord began to put in his heart praise and intercession and pleading for the young man Spurgeon. He said, quote, The day came after I prayed and took it to God, when upon every victory Spurgeon won, I felt as though I had done it myself. See, God gave him victory over jealousy through prayer. Isn't that neat? But that is true. Times at times, even people in ministry can have jealousy. Well, here, these guys aren't godly, the ones that we're reading about in Daniel 6. 
So they do a conspiracy to try to get rid of Daniel. Look at the conclusion, verse 5. These men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. (coughs) I mean, he's consistent. If there's going to be any fault, it's going to be with how he worships his God. So they get together and do a conference. So the governor's satraps throng before the king. You know, throng, that's kind of like, you know, trying to make him feel as like he's the king, which he is, and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. By the way, that's what you always said to a king. King Darius, live forever. All the governors, now now notice how they said it. This is a lie. All the governors of the kingdom and, and the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, and the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. Now, is that true, all of them? Well, no, Daniel wasn't there. So they lied. They lied. They're going to try to to get him to be condemned, which they do. And then look at the command. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. And the, the thing was, and this is known in history, that once the decree was signed by the Medes or the Persians, they could not, it could not be revoked. So it's signed. And the first question that always would come up at this point is, how do believers, how do we respond to a country or to a leader that makes laws against our God? It's like Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men, Right? Isn't that how we should do it? So again, the law is done. This is it. But how is, how is Daniel going to deal with this plot? Well, the third major point in the outline is this. The personal life of Daniel. Let's look at his personal life. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. By the way, the idea is that he just went home, just like he normally would go home. And as you watch, as you read through this, you realize Daniel just does the same thing that he always does. Nothing changed for Daniel. He was just consistent. What Daniel did in private, he practiced openly. By the way, that's not always true of Christians. Sometimes Christians do things just privately. You know, if asked, they will confess Jesus as Lord... But they don't want to offend anybody, so they just keep it private. (laughs) They back off, they retreat, they privatize their convictions, as it were. In other words, really nobody knows. But not with Daniel. He just did, he just went home. And you might say, why do you go home? Is he trying to escape? No, this is what he did every day. In fact, you're going to see this, that Daniel's greatness was seen in the fact that he did not hide his convictions. I think we need to learn this from Daniel. Don't hide your convictions. It's not just enough to to speak about the Lord. We have to show the Lord to the world. And he's consistent. Some might say, well, you know what? The 30 days, don't pray. Now, Daniel, you can pray, but just don't pray openly. You know, just pray as you're walking along. Just do, you know, don't, don't make a scene, Daniel. You've been here for 80 or 70 years. You know, you don't want to die. I mean, you can still pray. At least they're not asking you to bow down before the image, like, you, you know, like your three friends, Daniel chapter 3. 
But he has courage. He has conviction. He's consistent. The word of God is in his heart. And you know what? He just goes about his business. And so look at verse 10. It says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open, not closed, toward Jerusalem, he, excuse me, he knelt down on his, excuse me, I'm laughing, I can't laugh and cough at the same time. And he, knew, and he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before the God as was his custom since his early days. Everything that he just did was what he always did. He always went home and he did it three times a day. He would pray. He would open up the, the lattice of his, towards Jerusalem because that was the focus of his life that the people would return back to Jerusalem and he prayed. And just like he had done for the last 65 years, he did it again today. Nothing changed. And he, boy, you know, how do you get that strength? I liked what uh, Tozer said about um, personal life, the habit of holy thinking. This is what A.W. Tozer said. And the idea is this, that with Daniel, his strength wasn't found in prayer. It was found in the fact of the God of prayer. But Tozer asked this question. What do you think about when you're free to think? What do you, what do you think about when you're free to think? He goes on. Anyone who wishes to check on his spiritual condition may do so by noting what his voluntary thoughts have been over the last hours and days. What have your voluntary thinking been? You know, we have a lot of time that we have to put into doing something. You know, some of you are teachers, some of you are salespeople, your mothers, your fathers. You're busy, 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 busy. But the question is this. What do you do when you have free think time? And he goes on and he says... When, when your thoughts are able to be free as a bird and, and go to whatever, do you go to the old dead carcass? Or do you go to the ark of God? You get his imagery? When given freedom, do you run to the dead carcasses of the world? The garbage and the, and the refuse of the world? Or do you run towards God, the ark of God? Such a test is easy to run. And if we are honest with ourselves, we can discover not only what we are, but we, what we are going to become. We'll soon be the sum of our voluntary thoughts. We're going to become that. And so the reason I bring this up here is this. Daniel was surrendered to God. And therefore, I believe that his thoughts were towards God throughout the entire day. Now, he spent time focused thinking in the prayer. But the idea is his thoughts were always with God. And then given the opportunity to proclaim God, given the opportunity to stand for God, he did just like he normally did. What? His thoughts were towards God. Now he, he goes to prayer. See, this is the point. Your praying is going to become effective when it is built on the foundation of God's word and who God is. Sometimes I think we just try to pray in emptiness. You know, we need to pray because that's going to make us strong. No, what makes us strong is when we have the foundation of God's word and his character in our life. Then we go to prayer and we're feasting on the Lord, as it were. So we get four simple things as we close today as far as about Daniel. Now, again, this is what he always did. He went home. First of all, we had a place. It says, and in the upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem. That <coughs> word open means um, intensive. In other words, he swung them open. That's the word there. He, come on, Daniel, you don't have to swing your doors open. Just kind of crack them a little bit. 
Well, on that day and age, a uh, time frame, on top of the, because it was such a hot culture, no air conditioning, they would have an upper room, usually with lattice. And what he's getting at is he just swung open the doors towards Jerusalem. Place. Do you have a place for prayer? Is there a place where you go to pray? I have found in my own personal life that I have had to do that. I said it for years and didn't do it. Now I'm doing it. Do you have a place for prayer? See, for Daniel, he, again, I'm sure the naysayers could have said this. You know, hey, we mean well, Daniel. Listen, you don't have to pray kneeling. Just pray as you walk. Because for 30 days, you're going to go to the lion's den if, you, if you're found out praying to any other god but, uh, but uh, Darius. So the place, the next one is the position. N- he knelt down on his knees. He knelt. We well, don't have to kneel, Daniel. Just walk. Now he knelt. By the way, if you want to see a great prayer of Daniel's, go to Daniel chapter 9. See, you get a real good picture of what he's praying in chapter 6 when you go to chapter 9. We're going to be there in a few weeks. You find that his prayer is very biblical. 9 verse 2, it says, In the first year of the reign, uh, uh, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. What, what we find out in this prayer is this. Daniel is a man of the Old Testament. He knew that God was sending the people back through the prophet Jeremiah. But look at in verse 3 what he does. I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confessions and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him. And he just goes on and on. And he's confessing not only his sin, but the sin of the people. But the reason I bring all that up is this. The position is one of humility. Like you say, well, you don't have to pray. I mean, there's other times in Scripture where it says they prayed standing, they prayed prostrate. I would encourage you. Last year when we were in Jamaica, the... uh, the uh, director of um, Source of Light said, you know what, if you want to uh, have dynamicness in your Christian life, pray kneeling. And in, you know what my immediate thought is? Come on, I can pray just walking. And that's true. But when you kneel, there's something about the fact that, you know what, you are personally being reminded, listen, God is God and I am not. And I'm going before him with humility. And I believe that's Daniel here. He knelt and now notice the, second, or the third thing. Three times a day that day. Three times that day. And Psalm says in Psalm 55, 17, Evening and morning and noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear me. Morning and evening and noon. This is another thing that's been really hitting me. Because I've been noticing, you know, sometimes I can't pray for a half hour. But wouldn't it be great? Now again, remember, Daniel's this, this, uh, the, the, the third in charge. I mean, he's got, a lot of, uh, he's got a lot going on on his plate. But you know what? Every day he stopped. In the morning he prayed. And then at noon he prayed. And then at evening he prayed. And you know what? Every time that what happened, his heart was being readjusted to God. It would be better, I think, this. I could be wrong, but I think it's better. And this is what I'm going to try to institute in my own life. To pray three times a day, let's say 10 minutes each time, than trying to say 30 minutes at one shot. Do you see what's happening? What if when you got home from work, 
you said, you know what, I'm just going to go in the bedroom for 10 minutes and I'm just going to readjust my, to my God according to what the scripture says. And it's like your heart's being readjusted. And then you go through life and your heart's being readjusted. I would encourage you to spend a little bit less time in one area, I mean one time frame, and spread it out. That seems to be what Daniel did, again, consistently. And look at, look at his life. Nothing negative is said about his life. So the pattern is three times a day. And then finally, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he was accustomed since his early days. Here's an uncompromising, consistent, courageous man of conviction. This is a man who ended well. You say, how did he end well? Well, again, he kept going before the Lord. Kept going before the Lord. And at the moment that he needed strength, at this very moment, he, heard, he hears of the, um, the decree. What did he do? He went home and prayed. Did he close his doors? No, he just opened up like he normally did. Why? Because his life was in God's hands. See, he was fully convinced. Why? Because he had been before the Lord for 70 plus years as far as praying. Every day he would pray just like normal. Hey, I'm not going to change because of them. I think of the old, old Christian Polycarp. I like this illustration because Polycarp at this point was at 86 years old, very similar in age to uh, Daniel. When Polycarp was burned at the stake in Sperna in 155 AD, he had been a Christian for 86 years. Before they lit the fire, they called on Polycarp to deny the Lord and save his life. In quiet assurance, and I've read this to you a number of times, in quiet assurance with a steady voice, this is what this old gentleman said, 86 years old. He said, why should I forsake now? Excuse me. He said, 86 years have I served him, talking about Jesus, and he never done me any harm. Why should I forsake him now? And with that, Polycarp hung his head, with praise on his lips and accepted the fate of being burned. But why? Why did he have this, this strength? Because he had walked with God. He had walked with God. And, and my, my um, admonition to you is this. You know what? We, some of you are not going through a crisis right now. But it's coming, right? It's coming. For each one of us, the crisis is coming. They say, <clears throat> for any one of us, that within a six-month to a year's time frame, there'll be a crisis in our life. But, you know, as we walk consistent, as we meditate, as we allow uh, the freedom of our thoughts to go back to the ark of God versus the carcass of this world, as we consistently then feast on the Lord through meditation and prayer and keep coming back to God, not as something we check off our devotional list, but, Lord, I need you. I need to walk with you. I need to fellowship with you. What is that doing for your spiritual soul? It's strengthening you. So when the call comes of disaster or something happens, and whatever it might be, whether it's financial, relational, or uh, personal, whatever that disaster, we are strong. Why? Because we've been walking with God. We've been fellowshipping with him. We have been strengthened in our soul so that when that call comes, no, I just, and what did he do? He went home, opened his windows up, and prayed. He, it was as though nothing had been decreed. To Daniel, his walk remained consistent. Is your walk consistent? If not, again, do those things that Daniel did. Let's stand as we uh, worship him.